I'm Lawson Keeney. And I'm Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro John Lithgow podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have gone into a sort of different direction. Uh, we have done several movies based upon the end of the world uh, in the past, 2012, The Knowing, stuff like that. But this takes kind of a different tack. Uh, the end this time around is inevitable. The movie, of course, is... Seeking a friend for the end of the world, but before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. Well, of course, last week we did our episode on uh, the best exotic Marigold Hotel, uh, and that meant that this week I needed to watch its sequel, the second best exotic Marigold Hotel. Like the first, it is a comedy. It's directed by John Madden. It's set six months after the end of the first movie, and the hotel has become a huge success. And Sonny, played by Deb Patel, and Muriel, played by Maggie Smith, are looking to expand. So they're looking for investors to make a new building. Uh, Evelyn, played by Judy Dench, and Douglas, played by Bill Nye, uh, their relationship is sort of at an impasse. Um, they're, they're at a point where they're either going to completely jump into a romantic relationship or not. And uh, Douglas is fine with it, but Evelyn uh, is a bit reluctant to go forward. Meanwhile, Sonny's wedding to Sunaina, played by Tina Desai, is approaching and things start to go wrong. A lot of them his own doing. Um, this is a pleasant but inconsequential film. It, it's clearly been made because of the box office of the first movie, not because they had a really great idea that demanded all of these characters be returned to. Uh very few characters has, have a worthwhile plot line to come back to. Um, Sonny and Muriel, their whole thing with the hotel is the best part. Um, they're very successful double, double act, and uh, Sonny's stuff with the wedding is pretty strong as well. The acting is the best in these threads. Um, Evelyn and Douglas, they have a, a kind of a sweet thread, but it really does feel like spinning wheels. It does feel like, for Evelyn especially, this was a storyline that she went through in the last movie. Uh, albeit not with the exact same notes. Um, Celia Imry and Ronald Pickup are just wildly underserved, though. The latter especially. Like, Ronald Pickup just sort of wanders through this movie, like, exploring several B-pots from Simpsons episodes. Like, it's <laughs> it's it's nuts um, how, how little they have for him to do. Uh, but the arrival of Richard Gere in the cast spices things up a bit. Um, and uh, you also get a returning Penelope Wilton, who played Bill Nye's uh, domineering wife in the first film. But she was not unnecessary to come back. It's clear that they just found a way to shoehorn in uh, shoehorn her in 
so they could hit all of the characters from the first film again. Um, it does bring some emotion from things, and it still uses the setting of India quite well, but it feels more like a TV episode than a film. And it really, I mean, I mentioned in last week's episode that I'm kind of surprised somewhere like the BBC hasn't tried to make a six-episode-a-year drama series out of this. And this is the thing that first kind of made me think that because it is, um, it does have that tone to it. But if anyone would like to check it out, it's available for streaming in Australia on Disney Plus and Foxtel Now. Next, I saw Tales of Vesperia, The First Strike. It is a fantasy anime film directed by Kanta Kamei. It's a prequel to the JRPG, Tales of Vesperia, which released for the Xbox 360 way back in the day, um, and has since been ported to the PlayStation consoles and the Switch and all sorts of things. But uh, Is that one you've played? Yes. Um, it's set in the fantasy world of Turka Lumerays, uh, where essentially there is magic, what most JRPG franchises would call magic, but is here called, or mana, but is still here called air. Um, and uh, not A-I-R, but A-E-R. Um, and uh, it's sort of a world dominated by wild monsters that have, uh, in the fairly recent past... And, uh, like humans have only just beaten them into submission after a fairly large conflict. They're, they're not sentient, they're animals. Um, but uh, a lot of the humans live now in domed cities protected by the Imperial Knights. And the film is set in a smaller country town where two new knight recruits, Yuri, played by Troy Baker, and Flynn, played by Sam Regal, um, are assigned, and the monsters there are getting antsy. And there's actually some very uh, a heavy amount of air in the area, more than is usual. And so the knights start to investigate. This is a, a peculiar marketing tool slash prologue to the main game because it came out after the game. I believe it was originally supposed to come out before, but then it came out a year after because of delays. A year after in Japan, but it didn't get taken to English until... Uh, 2012 so it was like four years later um so it's a, a very unusual space for it to find itself uh like i said i have played the game i remember very little about it except there was a cool fantasy dog who used a pipe um like not to smoke with but just to sort of like have it as, as an aesthetic i thought um, <laughs> i thought you meant like use the pipe to beat people with no no he's much he's very dapper um dapper dog let me try and find the there we go i'm gonna send you an image of him repeat his name is oh i appreciate that um but mm. uh this is serviceable as an introduction to the characters and to the world it skips a, a lot you know there's a, a, a i do remember enough of that game to know that there's a lot going on in it and this movie clearly you know, wants to reference a lot of that extra stuff, but doesn't have the time to really go in depth. So it does feel like you're just skimming the surface of this uh, story. But also because of its function as a, as a prequel film, it can't be important. It can't be something that has some sort of game-changing effect on the characters that you would then need to know about playing the game. It can't get ahead of itself in that way. And so it does a 
decent job of contextualizing some of the important characters in that game but in terms of storyline it's got very little to offer there's a lot of hints at bigger ideas there's cameos from characters in the games um the problem is that it's stuck in arrested development it's place setting for a uh, story in another medium um, there are a few heavy moments that kind of surprise i remember that game being fairly kid friendly i would think it's it's sort of pg rated um i believe maybe m rated if they're really pushing it but there's actually some fairly like dark stuff here and there's a bit of blood occasionally which i was not expecting um but it's got a fun sense of humor as well and there are some likable supporting characters that have been invented for the film uh, i do like the del toro quest vibe in general that not just Tales of Vesperia has, but the whole Tales series has. I've played a few of them. They're like Final Fantasy in the sense that each game is an anthology game. It's it's set in a different world with different characters and stories. Um, but it's that sort of like cosy fantasy story that little like, you know, go to the inn and travel through cha- through towns and go and see mysterious monsters in dungeons and things. And I mean, is that a, is that a subgenre cosy fantasy? I mean, there's something very sort of like fairy tale-ish about the structure i suppose is mm. what i'm talking about um there's some clunky dubbing though it strains to match the mouth movements that the characters are making uh and it's i really don't like it when i want to watch you know i'm watching a, a dubbed movie and they put the literal english translations as the subtitles but they don't actually have the literal english translations as the audio they've like localized it but they've not put the localized dialogue as the subtitles because um, then it's just distracting. You can't use the subtitles for any reason, which I suppose if you're actually deaf is fine because you're not going to notice the difference. But as someone who just likes to have subtitles on, it bothers me. Um, you get some attractive traditional looking animation though. It's decent. I would say though that you don't need to see it um, if you want to play the game and you know, those games are pretty good. I would recommend people checking them out. You guys would probably like them better than most JRPGs because they're not mm. turn-based. They're um, they're sort of real-time combat button mashing so, kind so, of. So kind of like a Kingdom Hearts sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm fine will... with turn-based stuff. Like I have said before, I've played a lot of Pokemon. I'm currently playing through Persona Five, and like turn-based is fine by me. I just I just do like RPGs that are sort of that tactile hmm. uh, Kingdom Hearts sort of vibe, so I'd probably dig that. Well, they sort of like when you go up to an enemy, it does that sort of flash thing, and then it cuts away to this like arena, like you would yeah, get yeah. In, in a turn-based thing. But you're in full control, and it's a button mash kind of fight. Mm. Um, in any case, this movie's available for streaming in Australia on Funimation now. If anyone's interested, I next saw Moonrise Kingdom. It's a coming-of-age dramedy directed by Wes Anderson. It's set in 1965 in the island town of New Penzance. Uh, There are some wayward kids, Sam, played by Jared Gilman, and Susie, played by Cara Haywood. Uh, Sam is an orphaned Boy Scout. Susie is a troubled local girl. And they become pen pals, and soon enough a crush forms between them, and they decide to run away together. Um... The local police chief, uh, Captain Duffy Sharp, played by Bruce Willis, and Susie's parents, Laura, played by Francis McDormand, and Walt, played by Bill Murray, try to find them. 
This is a, a sweet story about kids and adults in crisis. It's it's more overtly angsty than a lot of Anderson's films, uh, which I think is fitting, given, given that the leads are these um, really quite young children, like 12 years old, I think they are. Um, it's, it's handled quite well. It's got a lot of scenes that are given over to this, like, strange romance between the two leads. Uh, Anderson's sort of awkward dialogue and characterization works surprisingly well when it comes to depicting um, two 12-year-olds who have crushes on each other. Uh, there's a, a running thread of humour re the, um, the Great Escape almost, or, or war, like people trying to get behind enemy lines or through hostile territory. Uh, this idea of these, you know, the Boy Scouts as this sort of like um, Hogan's Heroes type group. Uh, the movie gets a lot of mileage out of that. And also a sort of thematic connection of, not to put too fine a point on it, but love is love is a battlefield. Um, it, lets, uh, it lets Anderson try his hand at adventure filmmaking in an interesting way like he really commits to it as an adventure story uh and that lets him show off in ways i haven't seen him do before um but uh you you've also got this very subtle and dignified subplot with all of the adults and as opposed to the pathos that's very much on display with the kids it's much more restrained with uh what the adult actors are doing and it's it's all about relationships there too but sort of thwarted relationships um people not expressing themselves in the way that these kids are uh, and it's matched with the a plot in that way quite well um the performances are uniformly excellent gilman and haywood are both really good child actors they nail the tone you've also got a baby-faced lucas hedges as one of the other boy scouts um but uh, bruce willis is the knockout here like he is an unexpectedly strong fit for the Wes Anderson aesthetic and I think having seen it it's a pity that he's only been in one of the one of his movies and uh at this point tragically will not be in any more um but uh he he works really really well as this kind of like hangdog sad sack policeman um and it looks fantastic as well. It looks really filmic, really old school in its aesthetic, and it, it nails that 1965 sort of production design, costume design. Um, but it's available for streaming in Australia on Paramount Plus if anyone is interested. I next saw Storage 24, which is a monster movie directed by Johannes Roberts. Uh, it follows a recently dumped man named Charlie, played by Noel Clark, who awkwardly uh, f- finds his recent ex-girlfriend Shelley, played by Antonia Campbell-Hughes, with some friends uh, clearing out a, a um, storage... You know those big storage facilities? I don't know, the walk-in storage things that you can yeah. rent out? I don't even what you call it. They've got one of those that they had their shared stuff in there. They've both storage gone Storage facility. There. Yeah, they've both gone there. I, I know, but like what the individual things are called. Storage container. Yeah. Um, they, they both have stuff stored in there and they've both gone there at the same time and um they both bought friends and it gets a bit awkward but uh then a military plane goes down above the storage facility crashes in the area which uh shorts out all of the electricity and basically locks the whole building um from the inside uh but uh something else was in the plane and it's gotten into the storage facility with them uh, this is a, a dopey but agreeable monster movie, I think it's probably the best way to put it. It's 
really struggling to get to feature length. There is a long time spent on very little setup in terms of the emotional back and forth with these characters. And the writing is very, very patchy. Uh, the big problem here is Charlie. Um, he's hugely unlikable, but the movie seems to think that he's funny. It's, it's not enough that shitty things have happened to him. That doesn't automatically mean we will love the character if everything else about the character seems almost tailor-made to seem abrasive and unlikable. Uh, the third act kind of contorts itself into making him seem uh, exceptional and better than all of the other characters and a hero, but... Um, it does it in a, in a way that kind of is not supported by some of the other characterizations that they've set up and just is really kind of clunky. But it's, it sh- I shouldn't really be surprised, I suppose, considering that it is co-written by Noel Clark, who plays Charlie. So, of course, he wrote this part for himself that was Big Hero. Um, the monster design's cool, though. I mean, once it turns up, it turns into kind of a dumb R-rated Doctor Who episode. It's got that kind of vibe to it. Uh and the action is amiable enough. It hits all the beats. It was shot decently. Um, Johannes Roberts uh, has gone on to bigger and better things. Um, he's directed movies that we have talked about um, on this podcast before, um, namely uh, the most recent Resident Evil movie and The Strangers Pray at Night, as well as stuff like the 47 Meters Down movies, and I believe he was also a segment on VHS 99. Mm. But uh, there are some real clumsy attempts to come up with some sort of theme for the movie to deal with, uh, and it tries to match the monster with Charlie's breakup in a really clumsy kind of way. Um, The monster you see... When it catches people, it punches into their chests, rips their heart out, and then squashes it with a clenched fist, you know? Because that's what his girlfriend did to him. <laughs> like, it's so on the nose. Um, but you get a pretty underwhelming cast, all things considered. Ned Denner, he is kind of a standout as this sort of wacky storage dweller, this guy who actually lives in the containers mm. so that his uh, ex-wife can't find him and claim half of his assets. Um, uh, and you get Colin O'Donoghue from um, the first season of Arrow. Do you remember him? He's like Stephen Amell's friend who ends up, spoiler alert, not making it out of that season. Oh, shit, Tommy. Yeah. yeah. Um, you see he, him later on in like flashbacks and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but he's in this too. He finds some believability where he can. He and Danahy are the best actors in the thing. It's lo-fi, um, but respectably so. I mean, you, you give it credit for its ambition, for what it's trying to do with uh, fairly limited um, assets Means. at its disposal. Um, it, Like I said, Doctor Who episode, it looks like one of them too. It, but not like a modern Doctor Who episode where the BBC really started pu- pumping some... Um, not like money into there. Money into it. Yeah, not like a recent one. Not like the Capaldi, Jodie Whittaker era, but more like that very first season after they came back, the 2005 one with Christopher Eccleton, Eccleston, where they had the really rubbery CGI and the sets that were clearly made out of balsa wood on a soundstage somewhere. Mm. Um, it's it's far better at action than drama, but, it, you know, it works. It's fine. Uh, next, I saw the movie Ted. Uh, it is a comedy film directed by Seth MacFarlane. 
Um, and it follows a man named John, played by Mark Wahlberg, who, as a child, made a wish on a shooting star that his teddy bear would come to life. And um, he did. And now, 20 years later, that bear is just known as Ted, played by Seth MacFarlane. Um, they're kicking tires as stoned roommates. Um, and that's creating tension with John's girlfriend, Laurie, played by Mila Kunis, who... Uh, wants to take the next step in her relationship with John, but Ted is sort of holding him back with his childishness. This is sort of what you'd expect Seth MacFarlane to do with the premise of a talking teddy bear. Um, it's very funny. It, it navigates the too far line um, in a much better way than, say, The Dictator did, to talk about something that I've talked about recently. It manages its blend of sort of shock humour and offensive humour much better than The Dictator did. Have you guys seen this movie? Yeah, it would, would have been, been a while, while ago. back. It's a lot of fun. It it kind of mirrors 80s family movie aesthetics um, in some ways. Like, it's sort of this really... You get this very John Williams-esque Walter Murphy score. Like, it's it's done to parody these... Um, it's done to parody that sort of, like, 80s family movie in, in a lot of senses. And you even get, like, the... the uh, fairy tale esque voiceover intro provided by Patrick Stewart, who um, is a Seth MacFarlane alum. He's actually done a lot with Seth MacFarlane. Uh, Ted is the strongest creation here. He's the reason to come and see it. Um, it's a really well done piece of visual effects work. It's the the bear itself has a lot of um, body language, expressive face. Like it's, I mean, it's a motion capture performance of MacFarlane, um, and it's. He's very funny, and like the visual of this teddy bear walking along in the real world, like it, you'd think it would get old, but it never does, especially with the places that McFarlane sort of takes it, takes the story, and the sort of like cynical adultness with which uh, the character actually behaves. Um, but uh, I, I love how everyone just sort of accepts this. Like, there's never really any commentary on the fact that this is a walking, talking teddy bear. Like, when he came to life back in the 80s, there was, like, this media blitz, but then everyone just moved on with their lives. Like you They know, got over it. They got over it, and now uh, now he's just old hat, and no one comments on him. I, I did enjoy that. But you get some very strong chemistry between the cast. I'm not going to dig into this any more than to just note it, but for some reason, I like Mark Wahlberg best in stuff where he's playing an idiot um i i this is probably the performance i most like him in frankly (laughs) um but it's got a surprisingly sincere heart at the center of it it's about friends and relationships growing up um loneliness a fear of loneliness and a fear of uh putting yourself out there um it's not going to win a pulitzer or anything but it works for a movie about a talking teddy bear um the efforts to create stakes in the third act, though, is quite jarring. Like, it tries to come up with a big finale and that it really didn't need. It would have been better off at still uh, keeping focused on the relationship between the three, the three leads instead of trying to throw in this whole other sort of life and death thing um, at the very end. But, uh, yes, like, it, it's got a, a, a lot of humour that I like, a lot of wit that I like, and, like I said, um, it's got uh, our guy Peace Stew who is pretty exceptionally used. And um, actually, there was one one uh, bit at the end that I particularly liked. I don't know what you would think of it. Um, Harley especially, 
uh, because uh, it you might feel attacked because um let me just pull this bit up here. It's sort of this Animal House-esque ending where they uh, talk about what happened to all of the different characters with freeze frames, and then Patrick Stewart comes on to say what happened. To Hollywood with the goal of restarting his film career. He currently resides in Burbank, where he shares a studio apartment with his roommate, Brandon Routh. Remember Brandon Routh from that god-awful Superman movie? Jesus Christ, thanks for getting our hopes up and taking a giant shit on us. I do like hearing Patrick Stewart do that sort of that sort of stuff. I do have to say, Superman Returns. I don't put that on Ralph. That, um, that's not that's not his fault. <laughs> but the film is available for streaming in Australia on Binge, Foxtel Now, Paramount Plus, and Stan. If anyone is interested. Lastly, this week I saw the sequel, Ted Two also directed by McFarlane. Ted is now married to his girlfriend from the first movie, Tammy Lynn, played by Jessica Barth, and they want to adopt a child since Ted is a talking teddy bear and cannot have children biologically. But uh, when they try and do this, they run up into the fact that the government technically doesn't consider him to be a person, but instead an object, and so he can't legally adopt a child. Uh, Then how could he be legally married? Well, that's the thing. They do this whole thing where essentially um, no one's been paying much attention like to really <laughs> thinking this this through until actually the prospect of putting a, a baby in the care of this, this creature came up and then all of a sudden everyone starts looking looking real close into it and the marriage is suddenly annulled as, as not legitimate mm. and he loses his job because he can't he doesn't have a social security number and all of this stuff happens um but he he sues. he's a legal non-entity yeah he's a legal non-entity and he sues uh with the support of john who is now divorced from mila kunis who they've shuffled off very quickly out of this movie with very little explanation um and uh they decide they're going to sue for Ted's civil rights. And so they hire a talented but inexperienced lawyer named Sam, played by Amanda Seyfried. This is a very, very funny sequel. It builds on the first in a strong way. Like I said, it it ditches Mila Kunis quite clumsily, but it does make way for a more interesting dynamic with Sam, uh, who I found to be an an extremely uh, likeable character. Seyfried works really, really well in this sort of comedy role. I've I've not seen her in many comedies other than, of course, Mamma Mia, but that's sort of a a very different vibe than a MA-rated Seth MacFarlane comedy. And she is a very fun presence here. She has uh, very good chemistry with Wahlberg and MacFarlane. Um, I do love how... I mean, you you kind of see McFarlane's interests in what this plot is. I mean, he is very much a nerd, and like a lot of the stuff that he's done, the Orville, um, you know, Family Guy, American Dad, like there's this very deep well of nerd culture that underlines a lot of it. And he loves Star Trek. That's why he keeps casting Patrick Stewart and everything. He's had cameos from pretty much everyone that he can in the Star Trek series and the stuff that he does, including here. Like you get uh, the guy who plays Worf, um, plays a character, Michael Dorn, and uh, you get um, a you know, a, a cameo from one of the Deep Space Nine cast members as well. I mean, he likes putting them in here. And that's reflected he, these interests of his in 
this central storyline, which is very Isaac Asimov, I, robot, like what constitutes a person. Um, like the whole plot is essentially an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation in which uh, Data has to sue for personhood because he doesn't want to leave the Starship Enterprise. And so <laughs> Picard represents him in front of a, a Federation tribunal uh, to prove that he is a person, a sentient being. Um, like... It, it, I, I do enjoy how much they embrace that element of it. Although I will say that when they actually get into court and they start making legal arguments that are based around the Dred Scott decision, um, which was about whether slaves were considered people or not back in America, that's, again, that gets to be a point where, much like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, your wacky premise does not deserve the uh, seriousness of the human misery that this all represents. And you need, I, I just thought it was a little bit iffy. But uh, it allows itself to become a courtroom drama, which is, uh, you know, quite a surprising turn. I mean, it's a funny one, but it's still a, a genre choice that I wasn't expecting and quite appreciated. You do get the entirely unnecessary return from Giovanni, Giovanni Ribisi, who played a supporting role in the first film, um, it's not necessary. It, it, the whole thread could be excised pretty easily. It's sort of there just to sort of get the whole gang back together, except Mila Kunis. Mila Kunis, I should say, was apparently pregnant when they were filming this, so that's why she didn't return. Um, she obviously is a series regular on Family Guy, so I don't think that there's any discontent between her and McFarlane. But um, it's... Uh, the film also does highlight what I'm only just seeing now is kind of a masochistic trend on the part of Hasbro. Um, obviously, Barbie, we all saw last year, Hasbro. Uh, but that wasn't Hasbro, though, was it? That was Mattel. Mm. Right. Never mind then. Hasbro and Mattel are both, <laughs> are both masochistic then because you've got this kind of subplot in which John Carroll Lynch plays a, um, a Hasbro executive who wants to capture Ted and... Uh, dissect him to find out what makes him sentient so that he can make a whole line of these talking teddy bears that he can give to every children in the world and make lots of money um but uh it does repeat a few too many jokes from the first movie but it gets by and i, I would say on the whole wackier sense of humor and the uh the good chemistry and the good humor of its lead actors but if you would like to check this out for yourself it is available for streaming in australia on binge foxtel now paramount plus and stan and that is me done for the week what about you guys uh so uh for us we've kind of had a pretty normal week uh the first thing we have to talk about is a movie it is called kids versus aliens from last year it is a shutter original based on one of the uh segments from one of the earlier vhs movies all Gary, played by Dominic Marish, wants is to make awesome movies at his home with his best buds. Miles, played by Ben Tractor, Tractor, Tector, sorry, played by Ben Tector, and Jack, played by Asher Grayson. All his older sister Samantha wants to do is grow up and hang out with the cool kids. She is played by Phoebe Rex. But when their parents head out of town one Halloween weekend, an all-time rager of a teen house party uh, is conducted by. Just one moment, sorry. Billy, played by Callum McDonald and his friends. Uh, this, however, turns to terror when aliens attack. This forces Samantha to gear up and not only defend herself from the invaders, save her brother and his friends from a fate worse than death, 
uh, but also save her brother and his friends from a fate worse than death, being melted to a viscous goo that powers alien spaceships. Uh, I will let John say his short piece about kids versus aliens. What I liked about this was its use of its budget and its style. There's a lot of style here. It's very much taking inspiration from 80s and 90s teen films and from movies that people would make in their backyards, which becomes a part of the plot within this movie. And I appreciate that all of this movie is all of these interests that the director had with the people that he grew up with. He's filmed this movie partially in his parents' house, the house he grew up in. So it's really interesting to see this guy go back to basics and make this story about sibling rivalry, but also the love and affection between siblings. And that's really interesting. The aliens look creepy as hell. They look gooey as hell when they need to. There's a particular death in this movie, which is just so well done. Watching the behind the scenes stuff, they had to swap out actors. And because they only had so much time to do it, they had to get this stuff the first goes. And it just shows the dedication of the performers. I do have to give major props to who I think put in the best performance in the movie, which, geez, give me one moment, which was Phoebe Rex, who plays the, who I would say is the main character, yeah. who plays Samantha, the si- older sister of the main kid. Her character has the most to do, and as a performer, she's got the most to do, because she is reckoning with wanting to be still part of her brother's friend group, and still wanting to you be, know, herself. be involved and be herself, but she's trying to find where she fits in to this other group of teenagers who have arrived. So she gets the most to do there, and she really throws herself she really throws herself into the stunts that she has to do as well. She has to do some wrestling maneuvers, she has to do some sword fighting, a lot of running, diving, and she really does throw everything into it. And we recognized her from the series TV show From, where she showed up in a v- rather small part, but a very, very noticeable, very well-acted part. So I was happy to see her in another thing. I think she should very... Mm. I think she should be looked at and sort of brought up to more featured roles in TV. And like, then... Cause this was a strong performance, but her performance, uh, however short it was from From, was gut-wrenching. Yeah. So I'm. she's one that I'll be keeping my eyes on in terms of where she's going to go from here. But I'll also keep an eye on Jason Eisner, the director, because he makes a lot out of the budget. And it's got all of these things that he loves. And it at moments when it's sort of the plot falls apart, you can always look at it as good on you. You've put this movie together. It's definitely a passion project. And it just exudes that just enjoyment of the craft. Uh, so, I have to say I had a pretty good time with Kids vs. Aliens. Uh, my mistake, it wasn't from 2023, it was from 2022. Uh, when it went right, to it sort of like the festival circuit, it went on to shutter during 2023. Uh, so I'm not entirely certain how to list that. Uh, Eisner in the past has done several projects. For the episode description, we usually just go with what's on IMDb. Yeah. 
Uh, Eisner did Hobo with a Shotgun, both the short and the actual film. He did uh-huh. Treevenge. Uh, he did one of the segments in ABCs of Death, and obviously uh, he has his segment from VHS uh, 2, essentially. So Eisner has a lot of really interesting work in the sort of short film space. Uh, some things that are somewhat iconic, but this feels like a very dedicated passion project. This feels like the kind of project he's been working towards his whole life. Uh, it has elements from all throughout his childhood. Uh, it's got the pro wrestling inf- inspiration. It's got the inspiration from old cartoons and old toys uh, that you find all over the place. The whole, he- all the He-Man toys. You know, back in the 90s when almost every uh, toy manu- manufacturer had some sort of goo volcano? You know how, remember how big oh, yeah, goo was? Vaguely. Goo and as slime a, as and... A, goo and slime was for, like, Nickelodeon had the whole sliming thing and goo and disgusting stuff like that was part of a young child's life back then. And it's interesting because when you look at the toys that were meant for little girls... They're all this, like, pleasant stuff, unicorns, rainbows. What have boys got? Skateboards and toxic waste. Mm. Like, that's the stuff our things are themed off of. Um, so, a lot of that is a visual inspiration for this. Yeah. And I love the practical stunts they do. All of the aliens are people in suits and costumes. And I really loved seeing the attention to detail on their movement. The stunt work here is just fantastic, not just from uh, our lead actor here, but from all of the stunt crew playing the aliens. This is passion sort of incarnate. It's a fairly small budget. They don't get a lot of means, but they work with what they've got. He actually shot this in his childhood home uh, with the permission of his parents who still live there. And you can tell that he made a lot of uh, childhood movies there because he knows exactly how to shoot the space and knows exactly how to make the most of the space, Uh, especially the backyard and how that opens up onto a lake. Uh, That's incredibly effective stuff. I think the cast is strong for the most part. Phoebe Rex is one to watch. Uh, Callum McDonald plays this really, like, abusive guy and... He's really dedicated to the role, uh, which a less talented actor would have just not been able to do properly, I don't think, because he's legitimately threatening at parts. Uh, a lot of the kid actors are just fine. Uh, Marish, Grayson, and Tekta, they're doing their job, but it's a lot less impressive than a lot of other child acting I have seen recently. And the plot itself is pretty basic. Uh, basic storyline, basic sort of plot beats. It gets a little more brutal than anticipated by the end, but again, it's not exactly anything that you haven't seen elsewhere. Uh, I love the effort put in with the practical effects, the stunts, how the movie looks, its use of color is really fantastic. Uh, but it was really nice to also see the behind-the-scenes footage uh, for the creation of this movie, because everyone was, everyone was just having a blast. And you can see that on the screen at really any every point of the movie. Um, it ends in a way that sort of implies that there will be a follow-up, which I'd be very interested in seeing. Um, 
but yeah, it was a it was a fun all around good time. Uh, that's the only movie we've watched during this week, outside of obviously our episode specific movie. Uh, but does I know that John has a piss take? I have a piss take. Do you have a piss take, Lawson? No. No. Uh, John, why don't you do your piss take first? Hold on. So I put myself to task to do a little project over the past few months. So I've been getting into listening to a lot of new music music recently, and by new music I don't mean the new hip stuff on the top 100, I do mean music that I haven't heard before. Going back through an artist's discography, or a band's discography, or a collective's discography, and tracking the difference in sound, trends, styles of the music, and also topics within the music. So I've decided to start with a an artist who has spanned all the way from the 1960s to the late 20-teens. Uh, tragically, with his passing in 2016, he didn't continue releasing music after that. I'm, of course, talking about the star man himself, David Bowie. Now, David Bowie was... One moment... David Bowie was born David Robert Jones on the 8th of January 1947 in London, England. He would then go on to have his career and pass away on the 10th of January 2016, just a few days after the release of his final album, Black Star. And I decided that I wanted to go through this because he has had such a great impact on not only music, but on film as well. He had brief appearances in some features such as a film that we talked about which was the prestige where he played nikolai tesla he also featured as in a small cameo in the film the last temptation of christ by as pontius pilot as pontius pilot which is a personal favorite film of mine and obviously he played jareth the goblin king in the film labyrinth to which he also performed and wrote some of the songs. Uh, he was also quite good in, um... God, what was that? Just one moment. Just let me find it. Keep going. Man Who Fell to Earth, Twin Peaks. The Man Who Fell to Earth, exactly. Twin Peaks, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. That's the one. He's, he was quite good He also good showed up in a cameo in Zoolander. <laughs> so, I did want to go and do this chronologically. So over the past few months, I've gone through from his first album to his last and just listened to the studio tracks, not any of the stuff that is added on in re-releases. I wanted to just do this as people would have heard it from his first to his last. So I went all the way from his self-titled album, David Bowie, all the way to as... I said earlier, the album Black Star. And as I was listening, because I have Apple Music, I went through and I favorited every song from both his time as solo artist David Bowie and his time as part of the alternate rock band Tin Machine during the 90s. And I favorited every song that I would listen to again or would recommend to people. So I will go through the... Just one moment. I will go through the name of the album the day the year that that album came out and it will also go through the number of songs on those albums which i favorited speaking about some of the big ones that i would 
personally recommend genuinely to you guys. So from his first album, uh, titled David Bowie, this was back when he was very much in the 1967 folk rock scene. There were four songs that I would greatly recommend. There were four songs that I favorited from this particular album. The second album he released was Space Oddity, released in 1969. And this features the titular song Space Oddity, which obviously is a classic. And we're already familiar with say about that that hasn't been said already. But there is also a song on there called Signet Committee, which is quite interesting and speaks about how he joined groups and sort of communes that just sort of fed off him like vampires. And this is him really talking about that. Also, uh, of note from that first album, he had a spoken word song, which was quite interesting. Just give me a moment. Which was called... Just one second. Okay. Please, um... Mr. Gravedigger. It was called Please, Mr. Gravedigger, which is a quite interesting sort of soundscape. His third album was The Man Who Sold the World. This was released in 1970. It had five songs that I pointed at as songs of that I would recommend to people. Uh, the big one from that one is obviously the song The Man Who Sold the World, which would grow to greater prominence when Nirvana would cover it for their MTV Unplugged set. It's a really good song, and he would continue to iterate on this song in tours he would go on in the 90s, adding a bit more of an electronic feel to it. It then goes to the album Hunky Dory, which was released in... 1971, which had eight songs that were of note, including the song Life on Mars, which features Rick Wakeman on piano. And it is a very strong song. And it's showing that he's grown over the course of these albums. His next album would be The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, released in 1972. And this has, again, eight songs of particular note. Songs including Five Years, Moon Age Daydream, Starman, Ziggy Stardust, Suffragette City, and Rock and Roll Suicide. Aladdin Sane would be his next album. This was released in 1973, with, I think, the main song out of this being the song itself, Aladdin Sane. He would pair up with keyboard player and pianist Mitch Gershon, and, or Mike Gershon, and they would do really interesting freeform jazz compositions including adding jazz piano onto seemingly really ordinary compositions pinups would be his next album this is a cover album with only one cover of notes this was released in 1973 alongside aladdin sane and really the only thing of note is a cover of the pink floyd song see emily play diamond dogs would be released in 1974 the year later with seven songs of note this grew from a concept that he was building about a musical around the album 1984 with 1984 being one of the songs of note here young americans would be his next album in 1975 with four songs of note he was getting into a more blue eyes soul kind of vibe in terms of his music but this would change very starkly with the release of Station to Station in 1976 with his creation of the persona The Thin White Duke. He'd gotten a lot into drugs, particularly into cocaine. This led him down a very dark path where he would, on occasion, spout fascistic 
rhetoric within the character of the thin white duke who he would later regret saying all of these things. There were three songs of note here, including the songs Station to Station and Golden Years, which was used in A Knight's Tale. Low would be his next album. This was released in 1977. He had moved to Berlin by this point, and this is the beginning of a string of albums that were highly successful for him, which led to him having collaborations with electronic musician Brian Eno of Roxy Music fame. This album, Low, has 10 songs. The next album, Heroes, with the titular song Heroes, has five songs. And just reiterating to those who cannot remember when I started this entire segment, these are the songs, the number of songs that I favorited and would go back and listen to. The next album was Lodger. This was released in 1980, sorry, 1979 with eight songs. Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, his 12th album, would release in 1980 with five songs of note. His 13th album, Let's Dance, has five songs of note for me, including the song Modern Love, the song China Girl, and the song, obviously, Let's Dance, Modern Love being a personal favorite of mine. His next album would be the very contentious album Tonight, released in 1984. David Bowie would later call this era his Phil Collins era, and it's an era of his career that he didn't quite like. He didn't feel like he had much control over the music he was performing. Although I did find a silver lining in this, with six songs of note, including a pretty spectacular cover of God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. Never Let Me Down was his next release, another one that he, at later points, didn't appreciate, though I found six songs, much like tonight, that I appreciated, including the song Glass Spider and the song Time Will Crawl. This album would, at a later date in 2018, have a remix released, which has the same number of interesting songs. Black Tie White Noise would be his next release in 1993. This had seven songs on it. This album with the most favorites from me was actually a soundtrack that he had made called The Buddha of Suburbia with nine songs of particular note, including some instrumental tracks. Outside would be his next release. This was in 1995. And this is a concept album that I will not go into. It's not particularly well explored. It was meant to be the first of three albums that he would go on to produce, which he never did. But you're starting to see more of a 90s rock, Nine Inch Nails vibe enter David Bowie's music here. There were eight songs of note here, though with some of the spoken word interstitial songs, I didn't find much to attach to. I found a lot to attach to with his next album, Earthling, released in 1997, with seven songs of note. And a lot of what I like about David Bowie is here. Apocalyptic lyrics. Lyrics about paranoia, about finding a way to get through it. With particular songs such as Letters, The Battle of Britain, and uh, Little Wonders being particular favorites of mine. I really enjoyed the fact this had a kind of Aphex Twin uh, vibe to some of the instrumentals. Uh, an album that I kind of vibed with less, though I still found some glimmers in, is his 20th album, Hours. 
this was released in 1999. He's starting to fall off in terms of releasing an album every year or so. I am hurrying as fast as I can, Harley. This had seven songs of note, but nothing that really jumps out in my memory. His next album, Heathens, even less so with in 1999, was three songs. Sorry, in 2002 was three songs. Reality, his next album after that, released in 2003, would be much more successful with songs numbering six that I greatly appreciated, including Bring Me the Disco King, which is a very sort of spacey, ambient, piano jazz piece of work, which I greatly appreciated. The next day was his next album. This was his second last official release while he was still alive. This was in 2013, with five songs of note, including the song Valentine's Day, which goes through the thoughts of a school shooter in typical david bowie fashion it's quite interesting his next album within the chronology of terms of his recording was this album toy this was a an effort to revitalize certain aspects of his songwriting career he's going back he's re-recording songs he had written previously there are five songs here of note including london boys uh, songs like Shadow Man, Hole in the Ground, Silly Boy Blue, and Toy, parentheses, Your Turn to Drive. And obviously his final work would be the album Black Star, with five songs of note, including the titular Black Star, the song Lazarus, Tis a Pity She's a Whore, and the song I Can't Give It All Away. This is not including his time in the alternate rock band Tin Machine, which I won't get into because I didn't enjoy it as much as his... Uh, normal career obviously his songs in labyrinth are all fantastic including magic dance overall 120 of all 160 songs were favorited on my apple music 140 sorry 154 for david bowie's solo and eight from his time as part of tin machine this was really interesting because I got to see not only his growth as an artist, but the way that styles have changed and the way that re the releases of albums have changed. I didn't go into, again, as I said, B-sides into live albums. Although the parts of live albums that I did listen to, there is a much more tangible energy than the studio performances. And that's something that I greatly appreciate in a performance. My next project in terms of this, which I will write out far more succinctly, is the... Uh, Lawson, what's your opinion on David Bowie? I like, I like David Bowie a lot. I think that he was a very good uh, singer, songwriter. Um, some of the more, you know, the... Was it the Thin Tall Man or Thin Pale? The thin thin White, White Duke. Duke. Yeah. Some of that stuff, like... And it's not just the problematic fascist nonsense that he indulged in with that, but like just the general like theatricality of that persona for a for a celebrity is something mm. I kind of always roll my eyes at. But I, it's I not do your thing. No, yeah, I, I, but at, at the same time, he was heavily into drugs at the time. Yeah, which isn't an excuse, but it. No, I, I just mean in terms of like like. Obviously not the same thing, but like Lady Gaga when she was in her like meat wearing meat dress wearing mm. phase, I was kind of like, yeah, all right, like, <laughs> okay. The persona should begin and end on stage. It shouldn't bleed into yeah. anything else. I, I'm yeah, I'm not criti I'm not drawing a connection between the Thin yeah. White Duke and Lady Gaga, but um, of course, what I'm saying is that just 
that kind of like you know tada kind of thing um always yeah, yeah. um under pressure though under mm. pressure though is probably my favorite song yeah, yeah. it's uh it's uh, it wasn't released on any of David Bowie's albums. It was released instead on the album Hot Space by Queen because it was written with them. Also, potentially the name of my memoir, Under Pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Under Pressure is a fantastic song. Under Pressure also, uh, colon Under Pressure colon A Brief History of the Stuff I've Done. Hmm. Uh, what did you think about Bowie's acting career? Um, I thought he was really good, and I was, uh, I'm a little disappointed that he never turned up in more of the stuff that interests me. Or, well, yeah. not, I shouldn't say that, because he actually did quite a lot that interests me. It's just that he did it so rarely, I suppose, yeah. is a better way of putting it. Like, he he never, it was always like an a, an extra thing, which I, I get, that just wasn't his passion. His passion was music. But he was so good at acting, you kind of wish that he had more parts. I will well, say- particularly... His part as Jareth the Goblin King is iconic, and he really did an interesting job as that character. I will say that it was, like, absolute genius. If you can't get David Bowie because David Bowie has passed away, if you need to recast a character of his, as they had to do with The Man Who Fell to Earth limited series sequel, Bill Nye playing David Bowie, (laughs) playing this character, (laughs) is pretty exceptional for that sort of, like general you know i mean he was pretty much doing um you know there was a fair bit of bowie in his love actually character so i can yeah mm. oh so i and obviously in the musical that they did uh for the man who fall to uh, fell to earth uh t- titled lazarus i believe who was what was the name of the guy they had playing the main character michael c hall okay who people would know as dexter his yeah, singing voice is choice. actually quite good. I don't know if I, I don't know if I see the Bowie in that, but it might just be a different. He's got a good voice, but I, I, he's got a good voice, but yeah, it's strange choice. Well, he's not playing Bowie; he's playing the same character in a different adaptation, but with yeah. David Bowie songs. Yeah. Uh, so for my piss take, I finished The Shining, the book. Uh, I'd seen the movie like a bunch of times already, dozens. Uh, but I focused on the book this time around. The Overlook Hotel has claimed the most beautiful physical setting of any resort in the world. But Jack Torrance, the new winter caretaker with his wife Wendy and their five-year-old son Danny, saw much more than its splendor. Jack has seen the Overlook as an opportunity, a desperate way back from failure and despair. Wendy sees this lonely sanctuary as a frail chance to preserve their family. But Danny... Danny Torrance is blessed, or cursed... With The Shining, a precognitive gift that gives him visions hideously beyond the comprehension of a small boy. He senses evil, coiled within the rooms and walls of the Overlook Hotel. It is waiting for him. The Overlook, for most people, is quiet. For those with a light shining, it is pictures from a book. It cannot hurt them. But Danny, he doesn't have a frail shining. He shines bright, and the Overlook is awake. Uh, so, have you read The Shining, Watson? No, I haven't. I think the only Stephen King book I've actually read is um, Salem's Lot. Right, right. I will be getting around to that uh, shortly. I, did you at, like it? I did, I really liked it. At a certain point, I organised my book reading in the same way I have everything else in my life, and it got to the point where like, 
I'm I'm not sure how I'm going to approach Stephen King just because I once I start There's... thinking about continuity along mm. with the Dark Tower stuff, it starts to get super complicated. Yeah, and just there's a consider, lot of it. Can, I the know dude that has something... not stopped writing. I I understand, Lawson, that it's the kind of thing that you just can't do. You can't snip out those little bits of connections to things. But maybe for your own sanity, look at Salem's Lot, Jerusalem's Lot, and only connect things from King's work that are important to the narratives of future Salem's work. Lot and Jerusalem's Lot are key to the Dark Tower. Um, but that being said, The Shining. Uh, this is, of course, one of his most famous works. It's one of his uh, most famously adapted works. Obviously, we have the Stanley Kubrick film, of the same name, which adapts the story. We have Stephen King's own TV miniseries that adapts the story a, a decent a decent lot closer to the events of the novel. And, of course, its sequel, Doctor Sleep. Uh, and the movie, Doctor Sleep, directed by Mike Flanagan, sort of attempts to make Ridge up the, the difference gap. between the book and the film. Uh, but the book itself, I quite like. Uh, the three primary... Well, it has four primary point-of-view characters. Danny himself, Jack, Wendy, and Dick Halloran, who is the cook at the Overlook Hotel. And each of the different characters is really distinct in the way that they're written, which I find to be one of King's great strengths as an author. A lot of the time, the characters do use a lot of the same language, but they have different priorities. And they have different uh, levels of awareness, which is, again, a real strength here. Halloran is well aware of how The Shining operates. He's well aware of the Overlook and its evil. He just doesn't understand what it's like when it's fully activated. Um, Wendy is a fantastic character, uh, which kind of makes me think that she's been, she was kind of underserved uh, in the Kubrick adaptation of the story. Uh Danny is fantastic as a character, and he gets further development in Doctor Sleep. Uh, but the character that is, the, that is the most strikingly different between the adaptations is Jack Torrance himself. Uh, while he is a bit more accurate in the TV miniseries, I know that Lawson has his trouble with the character of Jack Torrance in the Kubrick film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is also a problem that I have uh, after reading the book. Well, listening to the book, rather. Uh... But not for the same reasons. Um, I believe that Jack Torrance in the film is... He was always a step away from going completely apeshit. And part of that comes down to the fact you get Jack Nicholson for a very specific reason. If you want a character to just be bug nuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be always on that line. I think at that point, maybe he was just not the right pick uh, for the role. As much as I do enjoy him in... The movie, perhaps he's not as good a Jack Torrance as I would have liked. Because I don't... Like, as a, on a personal level, I don't like Jack Torrance from the movie. But I despise Jack Torrance from the book. Uh, a lot of people would say that Jack Torrance is a good man, trying to make the best out of a situation, trying to fight his darker urges. But I, I do see his fight. I do see the fact that deep down he is a good person. But his fatal flaw is not his alcoholism. His fatal flaw is not his temper. His fatal flaw is the fact that at every single opportunity where he has the chance to accept his failings, when he has the chance to 
contend with the fact that he has done wrong, he shifts the blame. He constantly and consistently shifts the blame. He blames the people he's aggressive towards. He blames his son. He blames his alcoholism and the friends that enabled it. He blames his father. He blames the Overlook. And when he comes up to the Overlook, the Overlook gives him the opportunities to blame other people. Correct your son. There is someone trying to intercede on part of your wife and child trying to get into this situation. The Overlook preys upon the fact that Jack just doesn't want to take responsibility for anything. And Jack became both a fascinating character to look into the mind of, and a deeply frustrating one at that po point as well. Uh, the ending for him is much more complex here than it is in the movie, and the Overlook itself is a much more fascinating entity. Uh, because, like I said in my description of the story... The Overlook operates on different levels. For normal people, it's just a building. For people with a light shining, they see ghosts, they hear things, they witness horror, but they don't experience it. But for people like Danny, the, it comes to life. It is awake, and it wants him. It wants him so it can stay powerful, stay open, so the party can keep going. And we get a better view on a lot of the different entities that reside within the Overlook, Charles Grady, uh, the owner of the Overlook, uh, who we hear quite a bit about. Uh, we get an explanation as to the uh, the man in the dog suit, uh, stuff from the movie, which is distressing, for sure, but I do like getting that context. Uh, but there are elements here that were very cannily excised from the Kubrick adaptation. The moving hedge animals, the topiaries... They would not have worked with the CGI available at the time. That was a good choice to excise that. Yeah. Excising the living... Even, even the miniseries try, does not trying work. to do that did not work, no. <laughs> it does not work. Um, the living... Uh, what is it? I don't know. I the fire do hose thing? The living fire hose thing uh, doesn't quite work. Uh, but the slow decline of Jack's mental state and how... The Overlook becomes more and more active uh, is incredibly compelling. A lot of the lines that are iconic from the film are from the book, uh, just placed in different ways. Uh, and a lot of the lines that I find iconic from the movie of Doctor Sleep are resurrected lines from the book, The Shining, that do not appear in the movie. Uh, stuff like, masks come off, take your medicine stuff like that, that is really, really interesting stuff. Uh, knowing what I know of the book now, comparing it to what was present in the Kubrick film, the more I find how marvelous an adaptation the movie of Doctor Sleep was, how incredibly well served the story is with what Flanagan and team were able to do there. Because the ending of this book is not the same as the ending of the Shining film. It has more in common with the ending of Doctor Sleep film. Uh, I think this is a fantastic book. It's a great story. I am a big fan of Dick Halloran as a character now. And I had previously also read It, like, years ago. And a connection there uh, for Lawson, if he ever gets around to the Stephen King stuff, in Derry Main, Mike Hanlon in, the, in It discovers... Uh, he walks past to get home a bar that burnt down uh, due to racist violence. 
Dick Halloran saved lives by evacuating the building before uh, more people could burn to death uh, because he saw the event happen before it did. Hmm. Uh, and another connection uh, between it and something else, uh, when the bully is on his way back to Derry uh, in the flash-forward stuff, he gets a ride from Christine. Uh, so connecting those two pieces. So the Stephen King stuff will be very complex when you get around to it, Lawson, I'm telling yeah. you right now. Well, we haven't really gone into the way I do books, but it also mm. is dependent on making sure that I... And I know that book purists will be up in arms when I, a second I say this, but I, if there is a TV or movie adaptation, I want to see that before I see the book, just because that's yeah. how I, I prefer to consume stories. Is yeah, like I don't, I'm not the co-host on a book podcast. I'm the co-host <laughs> on a movie podcast. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's going to take a, a while for it to run out of Stephen King adaptations. I think. Oh, yeah, they keep making them, and he keeps making books that keep getting adapted. Mm -hmm. uh, Life of Chuck being one of the more recent adaptations we're going to be getting. Uh, what I find fascinating is how King draws inspiration uh, from his real life and how he places that in his stories. He is perhaps an author's author in that regard. Uh, the inspiration he got, he went to the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park in 1974 with his wife and son, and he had a nightmare while he was there. Uh, he was wandering through the corridors, uh, and he saw his son running from a fire hose that was chasing him. Uh, he had already gotten an idea for, like, a ghost story set in a hotel, and he would do that in the future with stuff like 1408. Uh, hotels have great transitionary spaces for ghost stories. We're talking about the power of the hotel slash motel before, um, in one of our prior episodes. I, this is just a great story. I would recommend anyone who's a fan of the movie uh, consume the book. Uh, it just gives you more context to the Overlook and a better ending, I find. And also, I would highly recommend the movie Doctor Sleep, because that's just a fantastic movie all around. Uh, so that is what we've seen within the week. Uh, now we'll play for you the trailer to Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. The final mission to save mankind has failed. The 70-mile-wide asteroid known as Matilda is set to collide with Earth in exactly three weeks' time, and we'll be bringing you our countdown to the end of days, along with all your classic rock favorites. So, uh, feel free to wear your casual Friday clothing pretty much any day of the week. And if anyone wants to be CFO... <laughs> anyone? So, what are you doing with the rest of your life? Catching up on some me time, find God, maybe move around some chairs. Maybe I'll run into you on orgy or something. Well, that sounds nice. Listen, Elsa, you don't have to come next week or ever if you don't want to. It's okay. You fighting me? There's just no need. Forget it. See you next week, Mr. Dutch. I regret my entire life. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye now. We should set up Dodge with Karen, don't you think? It's everything I never wore. <laughs> I've been with a different girl every day. They don't care about diseases. Are you going to call them back? Or are you related? You know? No, I don't. It's, I don't. I you don't. don't. <laughs> Hello? You okay? No. I'm never going to see my family again. Would you like to come in? I won't steal anything if you don't kill me. Agreed. Who's the girl? She's the one that got away. Well, they all got away, but she was the first, yeah. Let's go find her. We need to go right now. If you drive me to where I need to go, I can get you to your family. Hey! 
Basically, I'm getting my midlife crisis in just under the water. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Frenzies, where everyone's your friend. I believe you guys are still open. And do you know what? It's his birthday today. Why didn't you tell me that? Uh -huh. Happy birthday! No! Oh, God. Yeah, we should go. Where should go? We can't be serious. How fast are you going? 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. Given the... Couldn't you find it in your heart to give my friend here a fighting chance of being with the one he loves before we all reach our untimely conclusion? No. That was the trailer for Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. It is an apocalyptic dramedy directed by Lorraine Scafaria, and it picks up just after the failure of the last desperate mission to halt a 70-mile-wide asteroid hurtling towards the Earth. The asteroid is set to make impact in three weeks, and with no hope of salvation left, society begins to go bug nuts. Dodge Peterson, played by Steve Carell, doesn't know quite how to feel about all that. His wife abandoned him the second the bad news came through, and his friends are all spiralling into maelstroms of indulgence and bad choices. Dodge himself just feels sad and lonely, disassociated from the chaos around, and still, for some reason, going to work every day. When he's at his lowest ebb, he meets Penny, played by Kira Knightley, a bubbly British expat in his apartment building, who's devastated at the fact that she's missed the last plane back to England, scuttling any hopes of ever seeing her family again. The pair quickly bond, with Dodge drawn to Penny by her vivaciousness, and she to him by his gentle nature and dry wit. Dodge confesses to Penny how he yearns for his childhood sweetheart, the one who got away, and when he learns that that very same woman recently sent him a letter that was erroneously misdelivered to Penny's apartment, expressing the same, he's stunned. When their apartment building is ransacked in a riot, the pair escape in Penny's car, and Dodge makes her a deal. Drive him cross-country to find his long-lost love, and he'll use an old connection of his to get her back to England before doomsday on a private plane. As the days go by and mankind slouches toward oblivion, the unlikely duo navigate a civilization fracturing at an exponential rate. The, eccentrici the eccentricities of strangers coping with this impending doom themselves and their own increasingly complicated feelings for each other. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts for seeking a friend for the end of the world. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I really love this movie. I love how it shows the different perspectives on dealing with such a catastrophe. People fucking themselves and other people into oblivion. People finding dignity in the end. People not debasing themselves or becoming debauched, but finding grace in such a situation. This movie runs the gamut. You see people doing all of it. On one hand, you've got people doing heroin. On the other hand, you've got people simply lying in bed with the person they love. All right. You ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I cried. Uh, I'm a big softie. Uh, you guys know this already. I cry quite easily and openly, and this is a movie that really, really gets me. Uh, it is about that dignity that John was talking about. It is about finding, you know, a way to hold on to yourself in the face of calamity. Um, the bits that get me the most about 
other people who are still going about their daily lives, doing the mundane stuff like uh, going to their job, or mowing their lawn, or just being with the people that they love. And that's really powerful stuff to me. I didn't cry, but I wish that I had. And that's my big problem with this movie. I really like it. Um, I think it's very well written. I think that it's very well performed. I have a great time watching it, but I can't escape the fact when credits roll that I should be crying and I'm not. That this movie doesn't quite work itself up to the emotional weight that I need it to. And I think that comes from a seeming reluctance to go as dark as I wish that it went. Um, so yeah, we've. I was I was actually kind of struck watching this movie how um, how similar it is to something like Don't Look Up in terms yeah, of yeah, yeah. in terms of structure, indeed in terms of ending. Um, but what even, has... the, even the sort of general vibes, like the, not just the way it's shot, but the fact that it is comedy. Yeah. Don't Look Up is humor. much more caustic than this is. Yeah, of course. But, well, but it's also like trying to find hope within such a context. And even the sort of music has that same kind of ambient vibe to it. Well, what the difference comes down to is perspective. In Don't Look Up, we're getting the perspective of the people who are warning about the asteroids impending arrival. We get all the political discussion around that. Uh, and the fame that these people deal with and stuff. I really do like Don't Look Up, don't get me wrong. But there's something so special about when the movie starts, it is with the simple radio broadcast, well, a lost plan to divert the asteroid? That didn't work. Uh, I guess just stay on the line for updates and... It, it's it's kind... <laughs> Go for it, did, guys. Did they try to divert the asteroid in Don't Look Up? Or did. did it just all of the well, money they get tried, funneled they into? Tried to di- it they tried work. to divert. No, they tried to divert it, but then it was. Um, but then the mission was cancelled because the uh, Mark Zuckerberg allegory, or the Tim Cook allegory, realised <laughs> there was expensive minerals on the asteroid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but like, so this- in fact, this movie, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, is actually a little bit more hopeful about people. Oh yeah, not and by much, look, but it is. Oh, I think by much. I think by that <laughs> there's there's like there's no no one gets nearly as terrible in seeking a friend for the end of the world as they do in Don't Look Up. Um, and that's kind of part of my problem. <laughs> problem no, with I, it. I, I don't. I hesitate to say it's a problem with it because it makes me it makes me feel like I'm saying it's a bad movie. It's not. It's a very good movie, and I like it a lot. I just. I find myself in this very peculiar position where I feel like it's a movie I really like. It's a movie that I think is really strong, but I, on paper and in practice, kind of disagree with almost every thematic choice that it makes. And that's a strange place to find. I can't quite square that in my head. You, you, you prefer got, your coffee you've got without less milk. hope in humanity than this movie does. Well, I just, I don't even think that because I think that there is a way to do it. Um, I I feel like every time or most of the time that this movie has the opportunity to really depict what it's talking about and the feelings that it's talking about too, it kind of blunts it a little bit. I feel like there's part of it that is really like this is meant to be a broad release comedy movie by Sony who's going to put it in theatres all over the world and it stars two movie stars and they want people like it's not on the beach. (laughs) 
you know no, it doesn't no, have, no. it doesn't have to be on the beach but like it's i i feel gone too far in the other direction where i feel like you could you could spice you can spice the the sadness with comedy but i just wish there was more sadness mm. and i think part of it is and again i don't please please jump in because i feel like the more i talk about this the more i'm going to lead no, this no, no. conversation Look, down a negative path and i don't want I, to i i do see where you're coming from um i just found that that refusal to go a more cynical route helped preserve the movie's dignity and the dignity of what it's trying to say about people obviously we know that if we all found out there were 21 days left we would not be a dignified species i don't even need to see people going insane and like killing each other and everything but the sort of that that there is no darkness to any of it well hiring someone to kill you and it's an assisted suicide's pretty dark well yeah but even then it is kind of it's done in the wackiest way they can manage it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, it's done no, with, like, that. he thinks that Carell is the hitman and he's not the hitman, and then the hitman's actually parked in front. But, like, why would he also pick up these two people uh, if he doesn't want to know where it's coming from and he thinks that one of them's the hitman? I mean, I don't, I don't know. There's just... There was parts of it that... It, it, they are vignettes, right? Like, a yep. lot of this is vignettes, and, like... I think it's a great premise, that sort of road trip, um, apocalyptic road trip with these vignettes that you, you see all of this stuff. But um, I felt like too many of the vignettes were skits, whereas I would have liked a little... Like, I don't know. We've uh, ta- I, I, we've, do get you, I do get what you're saying. We've talked I could have about, done without horny TJ Miller. Yeah. Could have um, done without that, But that's that, more t- a TJ Miller <laughs> thing than anything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we've talked about it before, but Scrubs and... Yeah. The How to Save a Life sequence, which mm. you've said it's to iconic. me. It's iconic. Yeah. You've said to me, particularly Harley, that that's something that, you, you know, really hits you. Um, mm. Well, that song and itself I didn't, is... And I never even watched yeah. Scrubs. But that's that's a scene that that is in a comedy seri- show and is in a, an a, and is in a episode that is, you know, very funny and really does all its wacky humor the way it normally does but when it gets to that moment it just stops and plays it straight mm. and i feel like the you talked about the the dig preserving the dignity of it i actually feel kind of the opposite i feel like in undercutting the serious moments they rob it of some of the dignity i think that a great example of them playing it straight is that final scene mm. is the scene of the two of them they're just talking to each other as the uh, apocalypse comes i really love the scene too of steve carell just uh lying there listening to the sun ain't gonna shine anymore i think that was Mm. you know beautifully done those scenes where they really i do think it's like the moment they get to uh olivia's parents house onwards it like it just plays it straight it does and that's when i was starting to get like really emotional and stuff they go to dodger's father's place and the conversation that dodge has with his dad is i think exceptionally well done um yeah and and you're it's interesting and again i i'm I'm even i hope that over the course of this conversation i find a way to put this all in perspective for myself and understand my reaction even now Mm. but like spoiler alert my favorite um my favorite scene when we get to the end here is going to be that final scene it's going to be the two of them um you know talking to each other as the world ends but 
I strongly disagree with the movie's decision to have a comeback. That's my favourite scene. I wish it didn't mm. exist. <laughs> yeah, I w- no, I, I get wish what you're that saying, he had died alone. But I disagree. I just disagree. Because that's not what I'm looking for for this. What I'm looking for for this is to have him not be alone. It's to realise that that's it's what the title is. Seeking a friend for the end of the world. For him, he's been living his life alone. Let's be perfectly frank. Mm. Let me pose a question that I think will be good to talk about. Mm. Do you guys think that the movie justifies choosing to make a, a such a big age gap between its main characters? Do you think that, that, that the movie actually uses that enough to justify the fact that that is playing into a very old, very sort of tropey um, Hollywood thing of middle-aged men and women that could be their daughter? Well, I don't, really, I don't think it's a problem for the movie, and also I don't think it's all that necessary for the movie. You, you know what I mean? Really like, it doesn't it harm it, it doesn't help yeah. it. But, like, when you're sitting and you're casting, why... I mean, let's be honest here, they probably started with Steve Carell. Yeah. Like, Steve Carell is there's more of the obvious fit for this movie than Keira Knightley is. So you have an option then, once you've got Steve Carell, which is to cast a woman in her 40s. You yeah. choose not to, though. You choose to cast Kira Knightley, who's in her late 20s. They might have just had a good chemistry read. Because hmm. that's I, kind of what you need for the two characters, yeah. ultimately. Now, I, I actually think that it creates a kind of strange or skewed perspective that the movie never quite embraces enough. I think there's two versions of the movie. There's one that really leans into the age gap, that he is an older man and she's a younger woman, and they have different perspectives on what's happening as a result, and that's sort of part of how their relationship comes about. I think that this version of the movie that we've got is trying to do that. I don't think it does it hugely successfully Mm. because they never really comment on it that much. The other version is you have Kira Knightley and you cast someone a lot younger than Steve Carell. You cast, Mm. I don't know, John Krasinski. And instead of it being that his wife left him, you get it, you make it that he's kind of a wallflower, that he's never lived life in the first place. Mm. Um, And that this, that this is, you know, the story of his last days with this woman. Um, And I think that both of those versions of uh, movies that can be really good and really effective and powerful in how they tackle those uh, ideas mm. i but i feel like we've got this like weird kind of limbo-ish version there where it's done it's made this choice in casting but it's never actually done anything with that choice mm. no other, i see where you're coming from other than i don't that, think it that, harms it really no uh, considering i i think they have fantastic chemistry knightley and Carell. um they work together very very well mm. and i think the chemistry is what's most important at the end of the day, for the characters. Uh, because you, you you don't buy it otherwise. You know what I mean? They're, they're such different people at the end of the day. Um, and we've got, like, a pretty good cast here. Uh, Corella and Knightley are great. Uh, we have a couple of one-scene wonders. Uh, Melanie Linsky, Patton Oswalt, uh, in that sequence where Dodge is at the party with his friends. You get Adam Brody as Knightley. Melanie Linsky also in Don't Look Up. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, Connie Britton, uh, Rob Corddry. Uh, just let me find it. Amy Schumer's there for a bit. Yeah, that's sort of like right at the beginning of Amy Schumer yeah. becoming more of a public figure, isn't it? That would have been right like, just before maybe Inside Amy Schumer started yeah. on Comedy Central. Uh, we also get Martin Sheen as Dodger's dad. I think 
Sheen does an incredible job, personally. Yeah. Um, he's the and, he's the ringer. He's the heavy hitter that you bring in off the bench just for that one. Oh little... yeah, if he gives it the extra oomph, you know what I mean. Um, and it's, and it's unfortunately, of... and unfortunately, as I've already mentioned, T.J. Miller keeps appearing in movies from this era. But I, it doesn't I like stop. Martin Sheen there because he does look similar enough to Steve Carell to be his dad, mm. and he does add that gravitas. He does add that feeling of he is a an actor of dramatic stature. Yeah, and he's a very great actor in a lot of other stuff. Yes, well. and he's given good stuff to do and i love that montage to the hollies the air that i breathe Mm. and it is just such a beautiful thing of people just being people in a really shit situation Mm. and the lyrics of the song as well are interesting there it just works peace came upon me Mm. is one of the lyrics and that's incredibly poignant to what is happening there which is at the end of the scene dodge putting her in the plane and being willing to have her fly away and it is interesting because what they're seeing in each other is the stuff that they haven't been able to find in anyone else it is dodge looking for someone who's exciting who challenges him who is interested in actually communicating he he mentions that he's suffering a midlife crisis and he's sort of getting it out of the way before the asteroid hits and i think that's quite true and what kira knightley's character is looking for is she's looking for someone stable she's looking for someone who has a modicum of their shit put together someone who cares someone who isn't a dropkick and that's why they ended up coming together if this movie didn't end with the apocalypse i think that's when a discussion of the age difference would be appropriate but within the context of the film it is two people who in any other situation wouldn't have that connection um so the big concept of the movie is what do you do with the time you've got left Mm. uh 21 days the asteroid will hit not a maybe not a possibility of it going off course it will hit because there are the two schools of thought within the movie debauchery and dignity and there are the people who decided fuck it and thought i'm just going to do all of the things that i wanted to do that i didn't do because of consequences rioting looting drugs people shooting up heroin in the middle of a party kids people giving kids chugging alcohol kids chugging alcohol uh telling your own child to go f himself like all of this stuff that consequences don't allow people to do the sort of darker urges of people but in a really sort of base way but you've also got people who are saying fuck it and by that i mean i'm not gonna let it change me. i'm not going to let the end of the world change who i am I'm not going to bring myself to that level. I'm not going to let this ruin the person who I believe that I am. So and that's what certain characters are doing. They are just continuing as they would. They are allowing themselves... And see, I, I'm not saying debauchery versus dignity 
as a way to judge the people's debauchery, that's working for them. And you don't get a second shot at the end of the world. If you fuck it up, you fuck it up. You're not going to be around for much longer to deal with those consequences. So I'm not judging the people who are like shooting up heroin or smoking reefer, but there is something beautiful about seeing people face Armageddon and sternly say that it's not going to change them. That they are going to live as they would have, defiant of the end. I just think it's very... No one in the movie does that. Maybe Martin Sheen, he's just hanging out at his house, but no one else does that. Uh, The people at TJ Miller and Gillian Jacobs don't. Uh, The people who are at the party don't. Their behaviour's completely changed. Steve Carell would never have gone out on this journey uh, in that sense. Like, you've already said yourself that he and Keira Knightley would never have met and connected. Lawson, there's the people... I'm not talking about the sort of main characters that we meet. I'm talking about... The people the who are trying to keep see. the pieces moving. Mm. The people there, who are... There's the like people the journalist who are... at the end of the sh- movie who does that sign-off. He is continuing on, giving people information that they need, when he could very easily just, you know, not. There are but the people who are still finding... going to work. There are people spending time with their families and enjoying the time they've got left. There are people still mowing their lawns. There are people who... Are... Well, there's that, that lady, the cleaning lady that he's got. She just yeah. keeps cleaning coming lady, back exactly. And can't even she fathom the coming... idea that she wouldn't, wouldn't be coming in next week. She keeps coming back because she values him. Well, it's almost like... I kind of almost was wondering whether she even knew that the asteroid was coming. Because she just seems so genuinely confused about... And even like when he comes back the second time, doesn't she say something like, I'll see you next week? I, I, think I think it's because she she's says keeping that, a, that is more like she's keeping a mood up. Yeah, it, that feels more like goodbye. It feels more like I don't know. She's There's this sort trying of trying not to let it be real. I feel I feel like you're reading a lot into this that isn't necessarily supported by the text. Like she's so oblivious the first time she comes because she's like she she acts like she doesn't even understand why he would at all be mentioning this to her. She asks if if he's firing her. Like these are. These are sort of the actions of someone who doesn't know that an asteroid's going to hit the planet in three some, weeks. Some people take refuge in routine. And the way that I read it, you might not have read it that way. Uh, and that's just a matter of perspective. I read it with the fact that she just wanted to keep doing what she was always doing. She wanted to keep her schedule the way it was and found comfort in that. That's what people would do, let's be real. Mm. People like comfortable routines in times of great calamity COVID-19 pandemic some we were lucky enough to have university providing a sense of structure for our time at the beginning of the pandemic and later John and I found work uh, as stressful as work was during the pandemic but we had the podcast We, we kept going and people appreciate having those things to keep doing yes but if you guys had said to me, you know, should we should we do the podcast next week with everything that's going on? I wouldn't have been what are you talking about? What's what's going on? Like, are you do you not want to do the podcast anymore? Or you you don't want to <sighs> yeah, be friends Lawson, with Lawson. Lawson, I get that. I see how you read it. I read it differently. And what was getting to me, what made me emotional was that was seeing the people just doing what they would normally do. 
It's the people just choosing to spend time with the people they care about. We don't. We might not see them, but we certainly hear about them. There's the person who's there's the news anchor who says he's going back home to spend his last moments with his family. There's uh, Penny's family over in England. There's uh, Olivia. We don't see her or her family, but we can assume that she's with them. And I think what I'm, I think what I'm seeing about our difference in interpreting this is that when it comes. Like when it comes down to what I'm responding to, or you're responding to, we're both responding to the same things in different ways. That you're seeing, as you put it, like this dignity or or the the um the people spending time with each other and and everything like that. Whereas I'm seeing, in comparison, an overwhelming focus on humour at the cost of that stuff. That where we have that scene at the beach, or we have that scene where people are, you know, you're hearing about the people, like that scene where she calls her family, that's a very good scene. But it's couched in the middle of this, like, weird, you know, alpha male parody of a parody. And that that stuff, or, or when they're talking about, you know, their relationships and everything, it's, it's couched with the arrival of William Peterson and the... Um, the car with the hit out on himself what i the problem that i come to it is that every time like i want to see the movie that you're seeing but instead i'm seeing a movie that has some of that stuff in it but spends 90 percent of its time on other stuff broader stuff yeah i get that but what i was going into the movie thinking 21 days what would i do what would you guys do what i would do is I'm giving up on the Dark Tower if there's 21 days left, because I am not getting through it. I'm going to do my best to finish House of Leaves, finish my Swamp Things, and, you know, no sense starting any new projects. I just, I know you're kind of being funny, but, like, the, that no, you're talking I mean about... It. That's, it's about... Yeah, but spending time with the I people would... that you... That, that's most important to you, it's but then gonna, what would it, you it's... do? You'd finish House of Leaves and Swamp Things. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's not going to take me 21 days. That's true. I just want to, like, clean off the stuff I've already started, you know? Probably not play video games very much, or maybe at all. 21 days, no sense in doing it. Perhaps record a sign-off episode? For who? Doesn't matter. For, for my own sense of peace, you know? Perhaps I'll ask you what your top 10 movies of forever are. Like, I just got emotional about the context. The concept. I think carried me a lot of the way. See, and I, I agree think... with you because the concept is dynamite. Like the like concept of this road trip is exceptional. If you tell, if you ask anyone what they would do with twenty-one days left on Earth, you will run the gamut of human experience. You'll get people who want to go absolutely ape shit, and you'll have people who say the only thing I want to do is spend time with my family. And tell the people that I love that I love them. That's what you're going to get. And I, as much as I am more on Harley's side with of this, where I'm seeing what he's seeing, I do get what you're saying structurally, Lawson, about there just being so much front-loading of comedy that it takes away from the dramatic aspect of sequences. Like... I want to be when slapped the guy... in the face. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that's not to sum it up. I wanted the movie to slap me in the face. Sure. And instead, like, it's I... just sort of, I don't know, tickling me. 
I, I, I appreciate the vignette nature, though, because we are getting these different perspectives. We've got the perspective of Penny's boyfriend, roommate, whatever the hell, who is A just... A thankless Adam Brody. Yes. <laughs> just this guy who just seems pathetic in the face of Armageddon. Well, and then we get the guy who picks them up on the road, who tells them his entire life story, his dad's entire life story. Before before we I tell you my life story, I have to tell you my pop, Pop's life story to give you context. <laughs> I, I like how he ended that with, so then I got told that I have, then I'm told you've got three months to live, and then I'm told that it's only three weeks. And that is an interesting kind of idea. The fact that someone with a terminal illness is going to be seeing the end of the world. Mm. And then you've got Penny's family over in England, who are dealing with it by just being together. The thing that almost got me, that I was on that knife edge to tears, was when they mentioned the baby. The Penny's niece, new niece. And that fucked me up, because just the idea of that is just so distressing to me. That's one of the most effective scenes for me in yeah, the movie, yeah. is that scene where she's on the phone. And it's the scene, and it's that it plays it's it just straight. Her. Yeah, like, it's just it her. It just relies on her. And it just lets Kira Knightley go. It doesn't try and throw in a joke. Yeah. Whereas I actually feel like some of the things that you've just brought up, John, like not so much the William Peterson guy in the in the car, but definitely the, the boyfriend character, is entirely mm. a joke character. Yeah. yeah, he is. We're not supposed to really feel any sort of genuine emotion about him. Like, he just gets but, left like, behind in the movie never really talks about him again. I think he got shit-mixed by that riot. Hmm. I think he joined the riot. He was... I think he joined the riot. I think he was yeah. halfway there to begin with. I mean, he's not going to be able to riot effectively with a broken hand. So they're going to leave him behind at some point. A few bits down the road, but he'll he'll be part of the mob. But then you've got the, as you were saying, the alpha male guys just in the bunker planning for the end but they haven't really planned for the end because they're just a bunch of blokes well it's not just they, that it's like like titanium walls two inches thick as an if, asteroid mate. and it's it's also that thing of it's not going to save them it's flat well, out not going to save it, them if you look at the science behind an asteroid yeah, like matilda but it's a uh, it is going to send not just the impact on the place where it hits, but the firestorms and the sound that would be created by that, it is over in a flash. It's not a smart response to knowing that an asteroid's about to hit. But at the same but time... But it is like, a realistic one. It, it shows the doomsday prepper mentality, but then you've got the people who are seemingly getting married in the ocean as a way to put up the middle finger to the asteroid and saying that it won't ruin their fun. It won't ruin well, it's their not, enjoyment. It's not out of spite. It's because it's the one thing they had left to yeah, do. Yeah, and it, that's sort of the stuff that I really latch onto. And like, I think the strongest performance in this movie in terms of the relationship to the world ending, I think, is probably Keira Knightley. Agreed. Definitely. I, I think... Like she has Carell, more of a world that's ending. Yeah, Steve Carell is great. He, I love seeing him in serious things. 
but he's not really doing anything special. He's it's another movie where Steve Carell is sitting in a car, gets broken up with, but in this ta- this version of events, the woman runs out of the car. But Kieran Knightley is really just swinging for the fences. I really like both of their performances. I think they work yeah. really well to each other with each other. I wish that it hadn't become romantic between them. Yeah, I, just, I do think so too. I just didn't see it. I just didn't it, see yeah. that connection between them. It felt much more paternal. Um, and if it had been platonic, yeah, yeah, like you can have I pretty much the exact same storyline. They but can like, still spend their final moments together. Yeah, the second, like, even the sex scene in the car, I can kind of give a pass because it is just kind of like chemistry, the way the movie mm-hmm. presents it, or stress. But yeah, the bit where he puts her in the um in the plane and tells her that she's the love of his life. I sort of did a double take. I was like, wait, really? Where did that come from? Mm. Like, I haven't been seeing that at all. I've been seeing a a genuine connection between these two characters and I've been seeing the chemistry between these two actors, but it didn't for a second spark me as romantic. Mm. I I agree. I I think that is the one misstep the movie makes that it would have been more poignant if it was just friendship, camaraderie and just not wanting a desire the other to, be to alone. see it through to the end mm. and like i think that would have been more emotionally resonant for me that it is it's not romantic but it is just pure human connection do you want to know what the moment was that made me like fully break into tears oh uh, now i oh. want to see if i can guess go for it <sighs> all right is it in the last third yeah okay it wasn't when TJ Miller showed up. Christ. That's tears <laughs> of anger more than sadness. Is it when she turns back up at the end? Nope. Hmm. Before that. Well, you probably would have brought it up already if it was the bit in the bunker when she's talking to her family no. on the phone. Well, that that was getting me. It didn't make me break. Is it that bit where she, um, she finds the envelope and she has to decide whether she's going to give it to no. Steve Carell or not? All no. right, I give up. The newscast is final sign-off. Ah, yes. Very good night and good luck. Yeah, yeah, that that whole... The fact he just goes through all the stuff, talks about what he's going to be doing, the very sort of, like, respectful, dignified Mm. element to that. The The fact fact that that he wanted to do his job until the moment that that just wasn't going to be possible anymore, and then... He wanted to to keep people updated. He wanted to make sure that people knew what was going on and probably also for his own peace of mind, just keep going into work. And he also gets to be what we understand as the sign off to the human race. Mm. And you know, that's, that's powerful. That was an element of the movie that I thought walked that balance better than most other parts was that stuff with the, the media, because you get that joke at the beginning. That's like, well, we've, it's our last effort has failed. Um, we're going to be keeping you updated with the end of the world countdown alongside all of your classic rock favorites, like that element of it. Plus the, like the cutaway to the, um, the weather or something. And this woman just comes on really brightly and she's like, we're fucked, Bob. (laughs) Like, uh, that stuff I think managed what I was looking for with the sort of blend of wacky humor with the genuine sort of reality of it. And it's that kind of thing that Don't Look Up really did. And it's it reminds me of the scene where 
DiCaprio is sitting there, and the people are just being really jovial and really morning television talk show, and <laughs> DiCaprio just goes fucking ballistic. Like, I... Uh, yeah. There's a movie in between these, which I think is able to really grab a hold. Mm. What I ended up I thinking... Think- I'm looking yeah. for the A24 version of Seeking at yeah. the End yeah. of the World. I'm looking for the remake, the A24 remake of this movie. Same characters, same plot, but different tone. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. It, I just... it is a very sort of indie tone. It's very similar to the vibe of something like Crazy Stupid Love, even, that it is kind of... Well, not... Well, less that... I want the but Little Miss Sunshine it's... version of this movie. Like you're yeah, saying, indie tone. Yeah. I don't see it. I see a, I see a studio tone. I see a tone that, as I said, all, all seems very concerned about what the mainstream is going to think of this. Mm. Um, Lawson wants the Juno version where it's completely in, incomprehensible. <laughs> no, I, like Little Miss Sunshine is actually a good. Yeah, because yeah. like you have some pretty you know crazy and wacky stuff happen in there, but then you also you also have, have Paul Dano losing his shit in the middle yeah, of the. You have the conversation yeah. between Paul Dano and um and Steve Carell, Carell. on the pier. Yeah. You have the grandfather dying, and you know the mother sort of breaking down in the hospital because he was her dad. Like that sort of yeah. Now that I think about it, I'm looking for the Little Miss Sunshine version okay. of this. What's our opinion on Steve Carell as a serious actor? I think he's fantastic. Yeah, I think he's brilliant. Yeah. I think he's one of the more successful versions of this. Look, I'm a fan of Jim Carrey. I like his comedy stuff. I like when he gets serious, but he's less successful than Steve Carell. I think Carell, out of all of them, has taken more shots into other genres. He's delved more into it. And he's allowed himself to diversify in a way that Will Ferrell hasn't, in a way that Ben Stiller hasn't. Well, he's allowed himself to work on levels, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and have, even, you, uh, have you seen yeah. Foxcatcher, Lawson? No, it is on my list, but I haven't. It's yeah. on my list, too, because apparently, apparently he's, he's terrifying, terrifying in that, apparently. Well, he got an Oscar nomination for that movie, which is like... Yeah. Um, these other people are like... Like, that's more the Robin Williams tract, I suppose, that he's on rather than the mm. Jim Carrey tract. Definitely. Like, and he has shown himself to be formidable in both. Like, like the best he, scene of acting in this it, movie he can from... Go from... He can go from Brick in Anchorman. Who's <laughs> just a he comedy character. butter because it tastes great. All the way to something like that Zemeckis movie with the little porcelain dolls... Island of Marwin, I think it's called. Welcome but to Marwin. Welcome, to, Welcome Marwin. to Marwin. Like he can go in these different directions. He can do a little Miss Sunshine and then a few years later be an anchorman too, where he's confused about whether he himself is dead. I I I appreciate so much in the range that Steve Carell has because it's the expressiveness of his face in both instances. What what I found to be his most powerful performance in this movie was his conversation with Martin Sheen. Like, just the way he's... You can see that he's furious, and mm. he is still just trying to keep it polite. Well, it's it, that scene actually does get at something that I wish that the movie had drilled into a little bit more, which is a sort of twinship between Steve Carell and Martin Sheen. That both of these guys mm. are actually guys who are... Uh, 
have never put have not really put themselves out there have taken the easy way out yeah um and that that's sort of the subtext of that sequence um that conversation is sort of how he finds i suppose a kind of like maybe not peace forgiveness of his father but a peace with him yeah and i don't know i like it's the thing i can see the outline of it of what i want the movie to be doing yeah. like that's the thing that and again i was so worried that i was going to sound like you know um just just negative or and i feel like that's what i've become because i know you guys both really connected with this movie um and uh you know i didn't want this whole conversation to just be me going but mm. what about but what about what about and of course it has um but i what guess about? i just don't look at things <laughs> i i guess i just i'm less detail oriented I I suppose. Yeah, and don't take this the wrong way, but I feel also like you're giving the movie you're doing a lot of work for the movie in some spaces. Like Yeah, that's just what I do though. You're taking some parts of the storyline and some scenes that take up a very small part overall of what the movie is doing and the the thematic journey. And you're expanding yeah. them out to apply to the entire film. And and this yeah. shouldn't be a surprise to fucking anyone. Who listens to our podcast because we're the people who extrapolated from cat in the hat that the cat is the reincarnated or not not the reincarnated but a sort of the ghost of the dead father hey, we didn't I don't, extrapolate don't, that do not, we were joking about do not that. do not put me into that i had no part of that that was all you guys <laughs> no 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 that's that's what i'm saying that you look at a movie with everything that the movie is giving you but i think what harley and i do is Far more sort of emotion centric in terms of we take these little things. Not that you can't. Not that you haven't expressed that you can't be moved by stuff. Yeah. You you obviously can. Obviously, but but for us, consuming movies is a primarily emotional experience, and it's something that we've always done where we have taken what a movie's given us and extrapolated further. Be that well, I don't even think it's like, that conscious. It like and and um, uh, let me finish. We've always sort of done that in terms of trying to get into the inner inside of the head of not only the main characters but side characters as well. Like say when we were talking about say and uh, it's a joke that we started saying we watched uh, the Grinch who stole Christmas uh, late last year and. We got to the ending, and it has the part where the Grinch is like, I'm the Grinch who stole Christmas, and I'm sorry. And then the cop is like, well, looks like everything's here. He said he's sorry. And Harley and I took that, and we sort of extrapolated this entire character of the one who who doesn't take that for an answer, just doesn't accept that... He's so, sorry. He's not good enough. He, he broke into my, my home. home. <laughs> he came into my home. He made me feel not safe in the place that I tried to build my story. He stole sugar he plums stole from sugar a plums. child's dreams. It's like he stole sugar plums from a child's dreams. How did he do that? And now he How gets am to I supposed carve to the roast this? beast. Now he gets to carve the roast beast because everything looks like it's there. Okay, we've like, gone off on a, on a I, I separate know, but, track where you're but, talking about building a fictional character on the okay, sidelines versus yeah, but, but, the movie like John's, itself. The, what John's got on we to is not... We extrapolate from what is given to us in a way that I think is more than you do. What? 
I look, I what John's That's talking about is a separate example, thing. What but... what I'm trying to say is I will admit perhaps I do a little too much work on the movies part, um, for a lot of what I watch. Shit. I'm the same guy who cried when Superman sacrificed himself at the end of Dawn of Justice. So This is two weeks in a row that that's been brought up. Look, I just think it has... I kind of want to do yeah. an episode I'm, on Dawn I'm of Justice so that it. I can watch the movie with you so I can see you cry. <laughs> I don't do it anymore. I did it only the first few times. But I guess... I'm not, I'm not kidding. Yeah, like, no, it's the few bit. The, the, the word few is the bit that got me. And what, what I'm... What I guess I'm trying to say is that when I care about characters, when I care about a concept even, I respond very emotionally. And perhaps I do that easier than most. I, again, cried over Superman dying, so I definitely do it easier than most. But then again, at the same point, you also cried when you saw Spider-Man swinging through the city at the end of Far From Home. But that was more like tears of joy. Yes, because he was actually finally doing the Spider-Man thing. Yeah. Um, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm probably more of a emotional viewer than a logical one. I, I guess that's just what I'm trying to get at. Mm. And in an emotional sense, like every argument you've made, yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> and th- those make sense logically as criticisms. And I'm with you on that. Don't get me wrong. I do agree on those parts. And we love when things are acid-tipped as well. But like, when I a suppose... movie goes for the jugular, we appreciate that as well. But I suppose what I'm trying to say is I'm a sentimental baby. <laughs> He's a soft boy. I'm. I'm. It just got me in a way that I was not expecting. It and zigged when he thought it, it was going to zag. Look, it, it made me think about what I would have done, given 21 days left, and that further started pushing me over the line. Mm. And I don't know. That's just not to say you don't get emotional consuming art. You do. You've spoken about it multiple times before. I mean, the pure rage that was <laughs> in your body when we were watching the shitty scream. Mm-hmm. Like, it was hat. palpable. The, the energy yeah, sucked. No, I get what you're saying. It's, like, um... You reacted way angrier than we did for that shitty scream. Well, yeah, because the difference was our experience in watching it. Like, I watched it by myself in a darkened room with headphones on with nothing but the movie. Whereas you guys, of course, watch all your movies. And if a movie is like that, you can make fun of it as it goes. But I've got... I'm actually... Yeah. I'm just there in the drift with the movie. Your um, headphones are on your lock then. Yeah. I don't know. It's... it's. I get what you're saying. Uh, I think that just comes to a, a, a difference in uh, approach that we have. I have temper. Yeah, maybe temperament's the right word. It's well, I will fully admit you're a much more logical person than I am. Yeah, I, so, I, concept of less notwithstanding, because <laughs> that that's is highly a illogical. The concept but, is a lot is illogical, but the organization of it and the structuring the, of oh, it the is practical highly logical. reality the, of it. The practical is realities of the rules and the list itself is but, incredibly. But at the end of the solid. day, it is still a matter of structure. Yeah. Uh, you're well, a much more structured thinker yeah, I, than I, I am. Again, I feel like we've gotten into a weird kind of like awkward place in this conversation that I wasn't expecting us to get to. But I, I feel like... I was expecting it. I feel like the... Uh, I'm talking about the movie and you're talking about the stuff that's going on in your head with the movie. 
like and that, that flows in what you're saying like you're talking about you're thinking about what would i do and that's you know making you think about and i and that when you said that i started thinking about you talking about the dignity in the movie and how actually very little of those side characters i saw in the movie as being part of expressing that that sort of dignity there's the people on the beach there's maybe martin sheen but it made sense to me if you're then thinking about the what would you do how would this really go if it happened to uh us in real life that then you would think about that as as how you would approach it and then that then that emotional framework then gets moved on to the movie even if the movie itself is not necessarily exhibiting that most of the time see i think it all comes down to the movie's inspiring that that in me yeah Yeah. i think it all comes still something the movie's doing it just might not know that it's doing that it's just confusing like yeah and don't take it the wrong way but that's confusing to me to talk about because i'm talking about the movie that we've both seen and you're talking about this sort of emotional reaction this extrapolation that i just have no frame of he's reference rich on. in a world yeah he's yeah. <laughs> rich in a world um that i have no Look, frame of reference on but so yeah. when you say i thought the movie was very dignified and that's what you're talking about i'm like okay um because that's not what i saw on screen yeah look um i agree it's not all of the characters certainly it's not even most of the characters but it's martin sheen's character it is it is the people still just doing what they would normally mm. do every day. It is the people who are on the beach getting married because that's what they want to do with the rest of their life. And it's the newscaster. Uh, as as I was putting it, that's, it's... I think that stuff is undeniably dignified. It's the, the two versions. The DJ Miller of it all, yeah. that's not dignified whatsoever. That's a joke. It's the two versions of fuck it, which is what I was saying before. It is fuck it, I'm going to basically turn the world into a Bacchanal. And then there's the fuck it of, fuck it, why not be good anyway? Fuck it, why not just spend time with the people I love and do the things that I want to do? It's it's the two sides of the idea of not letting the end define you, I guess. Right, good couples therapy, guys. Same time next week. Look, I, I think don't these know. kinds of discussions yeah. are important yeah. because I don't that's know. our different perspectives. On Absolutely. I don't how know how effective art. this episode has been in terms of analysing the movie Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, but in terms of uh, whatever you call the long watch as a, as a social experiment, I think, yeah, we've got... We've well, we're got discussing our responses to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what, an... Yeah. important part yeah. well, we've it. not just been discussed we've spent a lot of time also discussing how we get to our responses in any case yeah um I-, I think it's an important part of the process though and if that is what has been brought up by the discussion of the film i think that is something that the film has in essence given us mm. so in it's kind of talking about the film in a roundabout way but anyway with the discussion that you guys were having i feel like i should be billing you guys <laughs> like bulkable hours all right yep this is um this is our off ramp i think that this has been uh one of the more awkward episodes of the podcast but i think we got something out of it <laughs> um so uh unless you guys have anything else to add um we do have an imdb parents guide entry this week I think um, I just want to reiterate how much I really do love that final scene, and specifically that it ends on Penny's face. 
and just sort of it being taken over by the blinding light. It reminded me kind of of Rogue One in the part where they're on the beach and you just see Cassian's face as the thing is just, the Death Star is just obliterating the planet. And it just made me think of that and... I found that quite interesting. Uh, we have two entries in the IMDb Parents Guide this week. For the uninitiated, the IMDb Parents Guide is the part of the podcast where we talk about the prudish and or pervy sections of the uh, IMDb Parents Guide for the movie of the week. Um, both of them are the prudish variety this week. Due to the impending apocalypse, there are several flyers advertising sexual services. One that reads... The F-word of virgin with phone number tear-outs is shown prominently in the opening credits. Uh, and another one, which I promise I did not write. Older middle-aged man has sex with young woman who could be his daughter. <laughs> See, I don't like the phrasing of it. I don't... Who could be? The word could... Unambiguously some... not his daughter, but I see what they're getting the at. The word could has some implications there, just in the way that I read it. Grammatically not speaking. happy about. Grammatically, it's... In terms of it's... sentence structure, it's not the way to phrase it. No. You've got to extrapolate, guys. <laughs> You've got to do the emotional legwork. <laughs> All right. Um, now, why don't we move on to, say, uh, our, our recasting of this for the Muppets Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. I suppose, would you call it that or would you call it Seeking a Muppet for the End of the World? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think so. Um, I think that there's two very obvious... Well. Three very obvious ones. I think the person you keep is Kira Knightley. Um, yeah. I think that Kermit is the Steve Carell yeah. character. Yes. And that see. lets you have a dynamite Miss Piggy cameo at the very start when she just fucking books it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's the shot. That feels see, like I'm, emotionally I'm massive... honest for their relationship, though, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. She does seem like the kind who would see the end coming and just... Yeah, she would run. Mm. I, I, I'm not a massive miss piggy fan i feel like so. gonzo is rob cordry and camilla is connie Britton. yep uh feel like Fo- <laughs> fozzy is um the truck Pat driver oh who yep. <laughs> gets nailed fozzy in the gets shot through the throat by yeah. but you can see it like he starts yeah. telling his life story and he says actually i should probably <laughs> tell my father's life you can see that in fozzy yeah yeah, you can. Fozzy. yeah, yeah. um the uh, electric mayhem is the bunker bros yep mm-hmm. Uh, Martin Sheen, I suppose you just keep Martin Sheen? I mean, I don't know who you'd put in there. Martin Sheen as the father of a talking frog? (laughs) I mean, kind of works. Yeah, I guess. Oh, this is kind of morbid, but like a CGI-constructed Jim Henson? Yeah, I Mm. I could sign on for Frank Oz. Frank Oz. Yeah, Yeah, Frank Oz, yeah. Because he's kind of, he's close enough to being Kermit's dad. Mm. Yeah. Frank Oz um, works there, yeah. And I, I think in the Muppets version, you personify... Like, you, you give a personality to the asteroid. <laughs> like, you give it a face and everything. Yeah, Sam mm. the Eagle for the uh, the cop that news refuses coaster. to let them off. Yeah. Yes. I did appreciate oh, that. Rolf is that, the newscaster. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Or do you get the Muppet newscaster? The guy with the glasses. Oh, that's good. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you do. And you just have, you have Sweetums walking around just doing day-to-day, every, everyday stuff. No, Sweetums is... Time. No, Sweetums just wrecks shop, goes apeshit. I don't see that kind of anger in him. What? He's a one-man <laughs> riot. He's a one-man mob, dude. No, I'm kind of with Harley. Like, he doesn't really... 
really he do that. He doesn't got that much. rage. Animals, the, animals be living riot. in a tunnel like some kind of Morlock. I don't know. I'm taking a lot of his characterization from his appearance in the Muppet movie when he just wants to have yeah. friends. Mm. Yeah, that's true. All right, now why don't we move on to say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favorite scene or sequence is, and of course, who we would recast with this podcast. Patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? Me! I will start us off and I will say that my MVP for this movie has got to be Kira Knightley. I think that she is giving a spectacular performance. She's hitting the humor. She's hitting the emotional pathos. Um, I th- she's very, very good at the comedy, which is, I think, something that was not hugely expected of her at the time that mm. she made this movie. It was sort of an, a, a new thing for her. Um, and she makes that relationship with uh, Steve Carell, the sort of the chemistry between them. She, she makes it believable. And she makes... She, helps it sell the fact that they're together at the end i still Mm. don't get the romance from them but that's not a result of her performance i think that's a simple result of the casting and the the writing um performance wise she's doing great so i'm going to give it to her in terms of my favorite scene or sequence as i've already telegraphed it's got to be that very ending sequence even though i kind of wish it wasn't in the movie uh i think you know, if, if it had ended with him lying there listening to the sun ain't going to shine anymore as the uh, the asteroid comes down, um, I would have been A-OK with that. But I think in, in having the movie there, that's the moment in the movie where I agree with you, Harley, that there's a real grace and elegance to that, that it's two people there talking, spending time with each other as the end comes. Um, and they're scared, but they've got each other, and then that's the end of the movie. Uh, I think that that's a very solid, powerful way for the movie to go out. Um, so I'm going to give it to that scene. In terms of Lithgow, I mean, there's a big part of me that wants to cast him as Dodge because, you know, we always like having him in the uh, in the main roles when we can. But the more I think about it, the more I think that he is far more suited for playing Steve Carell's father um, mm. for taking the Martin Sheen role I think that he could have that same sort of like um, what Martin Sheen does very well in that he is sort of playing an old guy who's has a lot of self-awareness at the point in his life that he's gotten to I think that Lithgow could do that there's a degree of of sadness there's a degree of tiredness uh, in that performance and I think that Lithgow could could do that extremely well and I think much like Martin Sheen Lithgow could also work as the uh, the hitter you know the the ringer come in mm. to really make the dynamics of that scene work so i'm going to to say that role uh for me my mvp is kira knightley uh she is really one of the big emotional cruxes of the film steve carell does get emotional in this but for the most part dodge is depressed and we don't get a lot of outward displays of him breaking down uh but kira knightley does that so stunningly She's also incredibly talented at the comedy of it all, and she's just on it the whole time. The switches in tone, the different priorities, different scenes have, and that scene when she's on the phone to her family back in England. That's just excellent, excellent work, because it's just her. Uh, there's nobody on the other side of the... Well, there's probably is someone talking to her on the other side of the phone, reading the lines, but the performance is we just hear her and see her response. And that's very, very well done. So, Kira Notley is my MVP. My favorite scene or sequence, 
I think it's the sign-off from the the newscaster. It's poignant. It's placed in a really good spot. And Lawson may disagree, but it 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 displays to me what the strength of some of this movie has been. I see dignity there. I see it's a very graceful way to see someone deal with the end of the world, deal with the end of everything. It's it's someone who's just like, I don't want to scare people. I want to give people the information they need, and I'm going to make sure they get it, up until the point where that becomes untenable. Um, it's the moment that made me break and cry like full-on tears, and I I always have to give credit to the, to the scenes that make my face leak. Um... Who I'd recast with John Lithgow? I see where you're coming from with casting him in the Martin Sheen role, but I'd cast John Lithgow as that newscaster. Not only for the fact that it puts John Lithgow in the position as being the sign-off for the planet Earth, as it should be, uh, it also... I think he can do that kind of thing incredibly well. That sort of balance between duty and... Like, that the purpose of it. Um... And considering it is the last thing we see of the outside world in the movie, I think he'd work incredibly well in that particular moment. For my MVP, it's Kevin Knightley, because she is putting on a masterclass in terms of bridging the gap between the genres. And it's something that people hadn't seen from Kevin Knightley before this. They'd seen glimmers with certain parts in prior films, but she's able to really embody a kind of character she never got to embody before. This idea of the manic pixie dream girl, which has become, which was very prevalent at the time, but it's not really just that. It's a character with depth. It's a character that has pathos, and she just attacks it with vigor, which I really appreciate. And yeah, for my favorite scene or sequence, I think it's the phone call where she's on the phone to her family, and as I said, the way that she spoke about her parents, her brothers, her nieces, nephews, when she was talking to them, the fact that it's just a shot of Keira Knightley performing the fuck out of that moment is really excellent, and it does come down to those that idea of it's the end of the world. What can you say, other than the sort of general small talk? Um, so I give it to that scene, and for my MV... For who, I, where, uh, for who I would get John Lithgow to play, I get what Harley's saying, and that's that's emotion talking in that sense. Who I would get him as is as Steve Carell's dad, because not only in a meta sense does that casting make sense, that they're very similar in terms of both being excellent comedic actors and both being excellent dramatic actors, but he would make sense there he would be that person who you bring in to really hit the people in the audience who aren't quite there yet. So, for the reasons that Lawson stated, I would get Lithgow to play Dodge's father. Excellent. So now we are going to put it to a vote. Whether or not we're a pro, seeking a friend for the End of the World podcast or not. Lawson, why don't you cast a vote first? Um, guys probably already know what I'm going to say, but it's, it's going to be no. Um... It's not the version of the movie that I think that it wants to be. Like, that's the thing. I think that it's actually aiming to be something like what I'm looking for, but it's only got, like, the vague shape of it. Um, but also, it's just not 
hitting me the same way it's hitting you guys. Uh, it's not an anti, far from it. Like I said at the very beginning, and, and despite my general tone throughout this podcast, I actually really enjoy this movie, funnily enough. Um, but I think it could have been so much more. And that yep. uh, that wasted potential in my eyes keeps me from being a pro. Uh, yeah, I thought I was going to come into this saying an absolute pro, uh, considering I did cry. I got incredibly emotional. Um, and while I accept that I was probably just doing that to myself uh, more than the movie was doing that to me, the movie did inspire me to do that. Uh, so, yeah, I'm still going to say pro for me. I thought it was really fun when it was meant to be fun. I thought it was very emotional when it was meant to be emotional. I I got myself to a very raw space while watching this, and the movie inspired me to do that. And yeah, I have to give the movie credit for doing that. Um, may not intend to be doing that. It may not be fully successful in doing that for others, but it did that to me. And this is a subjective judgment, so it's going to be a pro for me. It's a pro for me because while I understand what Lawson's saying, I still got a lot out of this movie. I think it was successful in being funny. And unlike Lawson, I don't think some of that humor necessarily affected the pathos for me. I just really enjoyed my time watching this movie. So, uh, we are not a pro seeking your friend for the, el- for the end of the world podcast. If you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find... Sorry. If you would like to reach us, you can reach us to our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about Seeking a Friend for the End of the World? This might be a little bit of a deep and upsetting question, but what do you do with your last 21 days on planet Earth? What is your conceivable plan for that? I Uh, recommit to Sparkle Motion. Recommit to Sparkle Motion. Uh... You can also like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Keep in mind, on certain podcast apps like Podbean, it is for specific episodes and for stuff like Apple Podcasts, for example. That is for the show on the whole. If you are commenting on a service that does the comments for the show on the whole, refer to the name and number of the episode you're referring to, uh, because we've done quite a lot of these by now, so it just helps us understand what you're referring to and communicate with you guys better. Uh, But please do like, comment, rate, share, and subscribe. As I have indicated, the end of the world has not occurred in the future. The world still continues, albeit robot-managed and run. Uh, We have had several asteroids attempt to strike the planet Earth. Uh, But there was a whole fleet of machines who were meant to deal with such a tremendous disaster. The Iron Giants. Uh, They are shaped and act exactly like the Iron Giant from the old cartoon does. And their sole purpose is to divert any sort of massive celestial disaster from taking place. Up to, of course, when the sun grows to consume us all. Nothing that the robots can do can stop that. Okie dokie. So, Lawson, what have you got cooking for us for next week? Uh, Hopefully something a little less divisive. Well, next week we'll be doing a movie that I know that uh, Harley in particular has been hanging out for for a very long time. Um, It's a movie that I'm sure he will be happy to hear is on the docket. It is the 2014 superhero movie, The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Yes! That's Uh, the one I wanted to do, not the first. So so something divisive, okay, cool. (laughs) Uh, Maybe not divisive on this podcast, though. Um... If you would like to follow along at home, you can find it available for purchase or rental 
uh, on the Apple, Amazon, YouTube, and Telstra stores. You can also find it available for streaming on Netflix, Foxtel Now, and uh, the Paramount Plus channel on Apple TVs. It's only available on 4K um, via the Apple and Netflix stores, however. Isn't it also on Disney Plus? No. Uh... I not thought a, it was. Not according to Just think... Watch. Who knows? This is a that's a Sony movie, so it might. Yeah. Who? It's. I think. I could have sworn it was, but I might be getting that wrong with something else. It yeah. Might have been at one point. Yeah. Well, either way, we have the 4K here. So. So join us next week for when we discuss the first hill online I was ever willing to die on, The Amazing Spider-Man Two. Till then, I've been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have Tell been and continue to be Jean Lewis. Is it so? Don't let me be the last to know my hands. I shake.